A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Two Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is not just another episode. In the spirit of the uh, festive atmosphere, we'll do something a little different. And we'll share with you the best and the greatest and hopefully the most entertaining of the feedback, the letters, the responses that we've gotten over the last few months and certainly the last few weeks from a varied group of listeners of Jewish History Soundbites. One of them asked the following question. Here it goes. Um, We know that in the pre-war era, the first half of the 20th century, some of the most influential uh, shiurim that existed in the world were Baruch Berleibovich and Rav Shimon Shkop. What would you say, in your opinion, is the has the parallel influence of today or the last half of the 20th century so that's a good question and uh, i would think that today the most influential speakers would be probably rush limbaugh and mike francesa that's a parallel influence um, whether that's a good thing or not is left for the listeners to decide here's the next one though there's a lot of hype about the World Zionist Organization upcoming elections. Based on your historical perspective of the organization of the World Zionist Organization, WZO, who would you say is the best idea to vote for? That's the question that was sent in. And I'll give you my answer. First of all, don't get that guy excited about elections. In Israel, we have them every three months. It's not the most exciting thing in the world. I understand for you guys... It's pretty unique and rare. Um, that's so. Let's just put that into you know a grain of salt. The second thing is, is that obviously you know you do whatever the collective voice of the Mayetzis Gedele Hatayra says, and I might add that's what always was done throughout history, throughout Jewish history for thousands of years. The only thing the Jewish people ever did was whatever the collective voice of the Mayetzis Gedele Hatayra said, as expressed. Uh, uh, as was an expression of the Das Torah. And on the same topic, we have the next uh, question. Again, another letter that was sent in pretty much in the beginning, way back, and I kind of held it back to before I 
read this until now. And the question is, do you have Haskamas from Gedolim for this podcast? Are they behind the medium of using a podcast and social media altogether? Signed, at Maish Instagram. Um, okay, so um, I'm yeah. You know some of these some of these I'm obviously not going to answer. We'll just go on to the next one. Here's the next one. Hey Yehuda, how did you get into history? How did you learn the places in Eastern Europe to be able to do tours? Did you go on a lot of Pesach Kron tours? So my answer is that I'll be honest. Way back when I was still a Bachar Amir Yeshiva. There was, uh, I've discovered in the Mir Yeshiva dorms and diras, I discovered some Haskalah literature, you know, very uh, problematic books like My Uncle the Nitziv and Paul Johnson's History of the Jews and so on and so forth, other similar Haskalah literature. And I discovered, first of all, that in the Mir Yeshiva in Europe there was Haskalah literature. And eventually I discovered all kinds of other interesting things of Jewish history. And the first tour I went on, was my own. I never participated in anyone else's tours. I never went as a participant. I was always guiding, which is pretty funny in the beginning because I had never been in these places before and I was supposed to be guiding them. So I would ask, first of all, where are we? And then I would start talking about that place. Um, the next um, the next one here oh, is a good one. Dear Yehuda, we've now been quarantined for the past two weeks in Tehran and have been listening to your podcast to pass the time. It's mostly great, but I have one big issue. Why do you feel the need to keep referring to people as extremists? It's really quite offensive. Sincerely, initials, President of the Naturi Karta. Okay. And as we also know, um, you know, Jewish history soundbites is very into cemeteries. I personally am also. We do tours of cemeteries all the time. So we had this fantastic idea that was brought up by a couple of listeners, and I decided to present it here in the middle of this special podcast. We're thinking of buying a um, a chelka, a section on Harazesim, which will be the Jewish history soundbites section on Harazesim. So we'll have a unique place um, for. Jewish History Soundbites, it will belong to us. So if you want to participate in this uh, important and wonderful endeavor, you can reach out to the Jewish History Soundbites Superfan Best Listener Award and active participant Ellie Neuberger for details, and he'll help you. We'll do this together. Um, we'll move on to the next letter, also a good one. Here it goes. Who are the producers of Jewish History Soundbites? Do they have a regular job also? What type of people are they? So the answer is is that, I'll be perfectly honest, they're a little strange, uh, a bit socially off also, but what can you expect? They're involved in a project that's Jewish history, and anyone who's uh, involved in Jewish history at any level is going to be a little uh, odd and nerdy. You know, it's just the realities of, of the, of the uh, job. Here's the next one, also a good one. Um, here it goes. As someone who usually does very timely episodes, I was a bit surprised that you missed the important episode on February 2nd on the anniversary of the surrender at Stalingrad, when Friedrich Polis surrendered the Sixth Army to the Russians, thus changing the whole course of World War II. Okay, 
I accept the criticism. I'll be honest. Again, we just talked about the producers. If I ever have another World War II battle, something related episode, they'll probably not only accept it, but they'll probably also remove all the episodes from the Jewish History Soundbites platforms and shut down the whole business. So I don't want to risk that. So that's why I didn't do it. Here's the next one. Um, I noticed that you have many episodes relating to the mirror and the mirror in Shanghai and so on. Um, and I recently read something that I wanted to verify with you. I read that Reb David Pavarsky, who was a great Altamir in Shanghai, testified that the Hasmada was so great in Shanghai that people didn't have, even though they didn't have food to eat, they would not go to the market to sell their belongings, their clothing, because this would be a form of Bittul Torah. There were some Bacharim in the mirror who succumbed to the pressures of the starvation, and they went out occasionally to the market and spent a few minutes selling some of their personal belongings and clothing to be able to buy food. Those Bacharim who went out to the market and wasted those few minutes from their studies, they did not become Rasha Yeshiva or Gedele Yisrael afterwards, but those who were completely dedicated to their studies and did not waste a minute, they were the ones who became the great Rashi Yeshiva, who rebuilt the Torah of the next generation. What do you have to say about that story? Okay? So here's what I have to say about the story, is that you're absolutely right. No one ever wasted a minute in Shanghai. Everyone became big Rashi Yeshiva and Gedele Yisrael. And uh, I even have a story to back it up. My wife's grandfather was an Altamir who was in Shanghai, and I once asked him, um, and of course he was a, a working guy, uh, he had a store in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, as did most of his friends, Altamirs, who he knew and told me about. Most of them were working guys. And I once asked him, um, you know, did everyone in the, in the Mir in Shanghai, there were such big masmidim, I heard that they all knew Shas. Is that true, that they all knew Shas? He looks at me, thinks a minute, and he says, you know, I think Rablaib Malin probably knew Shas. So there you have it. So... Here we have another one. Here's this letter. I'd love to suggest an idea for a series on the great supporters of Torah of the past century. I think it would really, it would be a really big hit. Okay. Here's my response. It probably would be a really big hit. So if they, um, if they're willing to sponsor them, um, they'll be happy to do it. So let's get a sponsor involved and, um, and we'll get it going. Here's the next letter. Dear Yehuda, I'm hoping that you'll do a series on some point about the great modern Orthodox G'dayim of recent generations. End of letter. Yes, we will definitely do an episode about Rav Salvechik, hopefully in the near future when I have a chance. And I've mentioned Rav Herschel Schechter uh, quite a few times already in the past, so there you have it. We've pretty much got it covered. Um, and here's the next one. Uh, here it goes. In recent years... Many people have been going to the Tzaddik of Velednik. Rabbi Yisrael Doivber, who was a student of Ramatal of Chernobyl, a great leader of Hasidus. In recent years, people have been going up to his gravesite in the Ukraine because there's a lot of zgulas, a lot of salvation, a lot of prayers answered, a lot of Yeshuas surrounded his kever. Is there any historical background that you can add to this phenomenon? of who he was and his place in the history of Hasidus? The answer is, no, I have nothing to add, but I do have a story to tell you. Here's the story. True story. 
happened on one of my trips. I was going, we were heading on the bus over to uh, some tzaddik in Galicia. I don't recall which one it was. And as we're getting closer, I start telling stories. I tell a little bit about who he was, who his his predecessors were, who his rabbeim, his students were, what the context, where he lived, what his you know philosophy of Hasidus was, and his leadership, and the role he played, and the development of the movement, and all that went on and on and on. When I get off the bus, we start walking over to the kever, and we're going to go daven, and a participant of the trip comes over to me and says, do you accept constructive criticism? I say, for sure. He says, you're a lousy tour guide. I said, wow, that's pretty constructive of you. Can I ask you why I'm a lousy tour guide? So I'll be honest, it was the first time I had ever heard that. So, uh, so he says to me, because no one could care less about what his place in the history of Hasidus was, or any stories about him, or what his derech in Hasidus was, or anything like that. You know what we want to know? We went, we're coming here. This is an ATM machine. We want to know Yeshias. We want to know who got saved this year. How many people won the lottery? How many people had kids? How many people got cured from cancer by saying, by davening at his cover? And if you can't provide the goods, then, you know, forget about it. Who needs your stories? So I said, if that's the case, and if that's the clientele, then I guess I'll become an accountant. But in the meantime, I still have uh, people who seem to be interested. And in that same context, here's another letter. Hi, Yehuda. Can you please do an episode on all of the Talmidim of Reb of Kerestir? I seem to know, or people seem to know very little about them. Did they write any prolific sfarim? Let's move on to the next letter here. Um, here's also a good one. Um, I noticed in a few of your episodes you hinted at a tiny bit of a condescending attitude towards a lot of the mainstream biographies published by the mainstream uh, publishing companies written by the mainstream authors of today. Is there a reason for this? I suspect that it's because of the dearth of sources and bibliography that are not present at all in these books. But I will tell you what I think about that. The reason that they don't have any sources quoted in footnotes or endnotes or in a bibliography is because everything they have is sourced and they don't want to burden us with all that words and written on the page and makes things so complicated and hard to read. This is supposed to be easy reading that flows. And if you keep that in mind, then there's no reason to keep that them these books in suspect. End of letter. So I want to commend you on your ability to be done lekav schus, but I also want to correct you that I would never ever be condescending to anybody or anything. Thank you. Next uh, letter about our recent episodes on the Jewish mafia. This was good. Um, dear Yehuda, I seem to notice a few similarities between the Jew, the Jewish mob, and the yeshiva, the Lithuanian yeshiva world. First and foremost. You have the fact that Murder Incorporated was in Brownsville, and in East New York a couple of years later, the yeshiva's base of Talmud was founded. So it was the same rumble-tumble Brooklyn neighborhoods, wild Brooklyn neighborhoods, that the elite yeshiva of base of Talmud was built, and also the Jewish mob was pretty active. That's number one. Number two, you have the fact that there's all kinds of rumors that Ravon Cutler had affiliations with the Mafia, that Reuven Grzovsky had affiliations with the Mafia. So what I was wondering was, 
You mentioned in a few ep- episodes about how there was all kinds of colorful characters that had studied originally in yeshivas like Valazh and Slabatka, Tells, and so on. Is it possible that any of these graduates of these yeshivas became prominent subsequently in the Jewish mob? And if yes, who were they and what were their roles? That's the end of that letter, and that's incredibly creative, and I have no idea, but let's start looking, and maybe we'll find something. Who knows? And here's the next one, also a question. Um, what was more dangerous, the coronavirus or the Black Plague? Which is an excellent question. Um, the coronavirus, unfortunately, is killing people, and it's kind of like comparing... Um, the, the American servicemen killed in Afghanistan through the Battle of Okinawa um, during World War II. Once we brought up Stalingrad, we could bring up Okinawa or D-Day or any other vicious World War II battle. Um, the coronavirus has killed a few thousand people, and hopefully that's it. It shouldn't spread. It's bad for business. Um, they, hopefully that will end soon. Also, there's still a few countries in Eastern Europe. Actually, Eastern Europe is pretty safe, uh, ironically. Um, uh, but um, but um, hopefully that will calm down. As opposed to the Black Plague, which was in 1348 and 1349, that killed between a third and half of Europe. So it's an interesting comparison, but there you go, another historical comparison. Um, and then we have, we have, I'll end off with this letter. This, not, this is not just the best letter that I'm reading today on uh, on this episode. This might be the greatest letter I ever got since we started Jewish History Soundbites. And here it goes. I recently read a story about one of the big daily Yisrael of recent generations, and I can't seem to remember his name or the identity of who it was. Perhaps you can help me out. The story goes as follows. As a young child, he was a big Ilui. He was such an Ilui, he was such a genius, that he knew all of the Torah, all of Shas, all of Paiskim, by a very young age, some say even seven years old. He was a child prodigy. He went to the great yeshivas of his day, Valazhin, Slabotka, a couple of other places, but none of these yeshivas were able to provide for him because he was just way beyond all his teachers. He was such a genius. He subsequently went on to become one of the great Gedele Yisrael, one of the great leaders of his generation and uh, had a tremendous influence on Jewish life and his community. Unfortunately, his son was caught up with the winds of the time and left the fold of Judaism and became a socialist. He then went on and immigrated to the United States, and as his ship was pulling into New York Harbor at the turn of the century, he went ahead and he took his tefillin and he tossed it overboard as the ship steamed into Ellis Island. This boy, after throwing over the traditional throwing over his tefillin at Ellis Island, as all immigrants did, he then went on and settled into American Jewish life completely assimilating. He had his own family, children, generations went on, completely assimilated into American life. Many years later, a grandchild of this boy, in other words, the great-grandchild of this Gadolbi Yisrael, who I don't remember his name, he was swimming out in Coney Island. And he was swimming, and all of a sudden an undercurrent came, and he feels himself drowning. As he's drowning, he instinctively cries out, Reb Shaila ben Reb Maisha, please save me. What am I going to do? And instantaneously, just at that moment, 
He felt something and he grabbed onto it. He grabs onto it, it keeps him afloat, and he gets to shore. Lo and behold, he takes a look at what this is, and it is a bag of tefillin. And it was the tefillin that belonged to his grandfather that had been thrown overboard at Ellis Island so many years before. This boy went on to return to Yiddishkeit, and today is a Rosh Hashiva in Lakewood. This was Jewish History Soundbites with Yehudi Geberer, and I hope uh, you enjoyed. We have a Twitter account. You can also subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to anywhere of Jewish history. And have a Freilich and Purim.